these markets. And I listened and I allowed them not, you know, not to put in full 18% cream. It, I, it's let some standards slip. And it was actually watching Starbucks open and start selling all these cream products. I said, I'm on the wrong track. I gotta, I gotta rethink this thing through. So, so in the United States, we were less likely to listen to people say, we, it's different here. But boy, when we went to Japan or we went to Manila, we went to any of these other markets, you do have to customize it. I mean, I, I, I tend to like focused businesses better than Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Robert Rosenberg. If you missed part one and, and his stories about growing Dunkin' Donuts from $100,000 in profit to $120 million in profit and from 100 locations to thousands of locations with Baskin-Robbins and other things, please go back and listen to part one. But Robert, I really loved your answer to this question of, of advice you would go back and give a younger version of yourself. And you, you talked about humility. You talked about this great book and making your own revelation that you need to make some changes. At that point, I think you said about age 35, when you really started being more focused and, and making some changes, you said that you implemented crisp strategy. What, what does that mean to you? It really starts with really a clear understanding of language. So it starts with, I would just, I won't go back to all of it, but what is a mission? What are a set of objectives? What are, what's a strategic initiative? What are tactics? And to ensure that everyone in the organization knew that and don't switch from planning period to other planning periods. So in my world, the first purpose, which is where it starts, is, is really for us to keep satisfying customers' problems and concerns better than anybody else in the marketplace. Second thing is uh, a mission. What do you want to be, which also means what you won't be, and that gets to be a hard, delicate matter, in the next three to five years. And if, if that's what a mission is, then the set of objectives are what are the, you know, maybe three or four really important financial objectives or goals that are the same in my lexicon. They're both the same that you want to have. In our case, it was to grow. In my first era of, of running the company, I was lucky enough to be sitting on a firecracker and we were growing at 50% a year. That's what got me in deep trouble trying to keep up that beat. I'd been larger than the GNP of the United States for a few years of madness, which I didn't realize it at 30. So you have to now earnings per share growth of, of about 15% a year. And, and then a second objective we had was to ensure that franchisees ensured at least a 15% return on their investment at the unit level, because that determines, in my view, scalability of a franchise. And it's all how much you do at the unit level, because it's going to open at a bell-shaped curve. You're going to have a third below, a third average. And if the average isn't strong enough, you're going to, the tail's going to get too large and, and swamp the business. And the third one was our debt capacity. And then the next one was what are the three to five or four to five uh, strategic levers that you're going to pull to bridge scarce resources? And everything has scarce, including the United States government. And what I'm saying would apply as much to the government, even to a family or to a community as it does to a company. So in our case, we would pay very much attention to how we were going to bridge our scarce resources of many, manpower and money against the achievement of those objectives. And we never would have 7, 10, 12. It would always be narrowed down to those that are going to make the most impact. And that language would permeate down through the organization. 
So what the objectives might be, for example, one of the strategic initiatives might to be grow new distribution, new stores in our language, 3%. Well, that translates to 100 stores. So the development department would then say that's their objective, and then they would build the strategies open to new markets, hire so many district managers, I mean, real estate representatives. So it would permeate and cascade down through the organization with the same language. And every year at the beginning of the planning cycle, I, in conjunction with the operating committee, the senior managers of the company, would decide what the call is going to be. Not a prescription. We don't tell them what they have to do. We're going to outline to them, to everybody in the organization, what we're about, what we want to be, what we want to have, what are the levers that we're thinking about drawing, and how that would shape some of their plans. Then they would meet in the planning process with each of their supervisors, and it rolls up to the top. And we also ask if they would provide some margin of error in case they missed some of their milestones. You know, what do they have in their back pocket? And I'd go to the board, and I would tell the board what I had in my back pocket. I w- we wouldn't have different plans. We wouldn't have a stretch goal and think everybody's going to achieve a lower goal. We, mean, we meant what we said. You know, we really did mean what we, what we said in terms of our planning. So that's a more gl- granular look. And I go through all of this in the book, step by step. And that was, our, that was our planning process. And it was a real important part. Strategy is one of the key elements a CEO has to shepherd is the strategic direction. If you get that wrong and you get the organization wrong, there's nothing else you can do to fix it. You're done. Well, and if anybody missed part one, the book is Around the Corner to Around the World. I just bought my copy on audible.com so I can listen to it instead of having to read it. So I, I'm a big fan of that. Robert, it, it makes me think of a couple questions. One of them that I'm so interested with your story is is the scale that you've done it. What do you think your your gross sales were when you were retiring what, across all the businesses? Oh, I think it was two and a half or three billion. Yeah. So system wide. System wide. Yeah, yeah. So when you think about doing this across, you know, two and a half to three billion dollars, I think my question there is I'm fascinated and encouraged by your intention of like, let's make sure that the individual units are doing at least 15% ROI for themselves. When somebody wasn't, what did that look like when you needed to help somebody either pull the right levers or, or these kind of things? What did that look like? At the end, we got more sophisticated. We started to categorize stores A, B, and C. A were extraordinary franchisees that could grow like crazy. B were, were good franchisees that needed a little bit more work to get them ready to grow if they wanted to. Not everybody had to, and not everybody wanted to. Some, by the way, you know, when I when I started, before we started to evolve the system, the biggest owner was eight stores. When I left, there were franchisees that owned over a hundred stores, and there are franchisees now that have networks. And they are people that are worth tens of millions of dollars, a little understood element of franchising. It is not only a better way for a family to improve its standing and its return, but it also can be a pathway to immense wealth creation, well, immense wealth, wealth creation. So I, I, I actually lost a little bit of track. No, no, but, but I guess my question is those stores that were in the sea, the sea stores, okay. so what, what did helping actually, them look like? We, we, we actually would have uh, a separate organization to, to, to visit those people that were in trouble. And we would try to help them, you know, whatever it required, better standards, oftentimes, better production scheduling. In some markets where we were priming the pump because we were very focused in terms of where we built the brand. We didn't build a brand where everybody wanted to open a store. We went in to build a brand in the communities we wanted to develop and so we could afford supervision. And, and, and so sometimes, I remember, I think it was in Quebec City, we would prime the pump when we were fighting against Tim. We wanted to make an inroad. We wanted to 
get a foothold. So we would put in extra money to do that. That was rare. That, that wasn't a common occurrence, but that we would do that occasionally. And in some, in some cases, we came to the conclusion it wasn't a fit. Someone had to exit. And if you're in a community where there are other stores and other strong owners, they are ready buyers for those stores and can add value by virtue of the fact that they have better staff. They can deliver more consistently. That's another advantage of focusing and what I call fortressing a market. And that's what we were about. We were about fortressing markets. We weren't interested so much in total numbers of stores or total numbers of markets. In the U.S., when I was active, there were 300 SMSAs, statistical marketing sales areas. We might have only been growing at 30 or 40 of them at a time. And we would only put 75 new distribution in those markets that could afford what we call gross rating points of 26 weeks on TV, one and a half impressions a week. And the other 25% of the stores we would open in markets that could rise to that level of every of six months, 26 weeks of, of 150 gross earning points. So it's all part of the planning. I mean, this was this kind of really granular planning that would go on, learning from our experience as we went along, what works, what doesn't work quickly. And so that, that's, that's what we did with those that were in D's. And some D's became C's and B's and A's and some exited, but they had ready buyers and ready buyers almost always were in the market or close by and they could add real value. And they came on stream, sat at thrill customers, you know, in some markets where the store wasn't doing well, standards were poor. We weren't doing our brand a lot of good. We needed to fix it. So I really like this term, fortressing a market. What, what did that look like to fortress a market? Well, in, in Boston, it's a joke that the way you get directions in Boston when you stop someone on the street is by where each Dunkin' Donut shop is located. So I remember when I joined in 1963, head of the real estate department said, we have gone as far as we can go. We have 20 locations in Boston. We have to go to California. About, I don't know, long, maybe not 10 or 15 years ago, I got an award someplace at Babson, I think. And, and I remember telling the story, there were about 350 stores in Boston all those years <laughs> later, and we still hadn't built out. There's now one store probably for every eight or 9,000 people. So if it's a business that's driven by convenience, it's habit, you got to make it accessible within reach. And that was one of the turn points for us just to really understand that. So that's, that's what I call fortressing a market. That's, it's putting in a lot of distribution. And that's what makes Tim so hard to come to the United States into Duncan's markets. There's no room unless they came up with a better way to go to market better than we, a different menu, different price, something different, significantly to woo the customer. There's no room. We're filled it up. They, and when they sold to Wendy's, you know, when, when Ron Joyce, who used to tease me about selling me the business, when, when he, he finally did sell it for $450 million to Wendy's, they came into New England and they put them, co-located them on Wendy's lots. There was no room for them. Our franchisees put them out of business within three years, I think. It was, they, they just didn't have anything real to offer our customers. Well, it's That's why you won't see a lot. You won't, we don't, probably don't see a lot of Dunkins now in Canada. <laughs> well, thinking about all this experience, you know, on these boards for Sonic and Domino's and all your own experience and, and teaching at the graduate school at Babson College, what's, it, what's another story in the book that's, that's fun to tell? Uh, a story about uh, how franchisees contribute to the growth of the business. In 1972, there were, I set the stage, there were gas lines because of the oil embargo. OPEC had just gotten its muscle. Sales were bad. 
We were in wage and price controls. Nixon had imposed wage and price controls. So we were getting increases from the great, what we call grain robbery. Uh, we had sold 10 million cubic tons of wheat to Russia. So prices were growing astronomically. We couldn't pass them along. It was a, di- a, a dollar time for us. It was a tough time. And I got a phone call from a franchise owner, a fellow by the name of Bob Demery. And he said, you got to come down to my store. He said, my wife Edna has developed this new thing. Uh, where you take the donut holes and she's got a special cutter and she cuts them. And she goes, I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, we've been selling donut holes for years at, at Halloween. We would take the center cuts out of the first cut, have cake mix. And we would, you'll know all of this because I go into how we make donuts in the book. And he said, we would, we would put them in these plastic bags and we put them on these potato chip clips around Halloween. For a week, we'd sell them because we thought it might be a trick-or-treat thing. He said, no, 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 it's nothing like that. These are bigger, they're better. She's filling them with jelly and apple and blueberry. And she's honey dipping some of them. And she, some of them are cakes, some of them are yeast. And they're fabulous. She's piling them high in the, in, the, in the front case, our fancy case, we call it. And he said, our business is up 20%. Now, any retailer will tell you. <laughs> so in those days, 6% was great same-store sales growth. Uh, as it got more mature and the baby boomers moved on to casual dining, it became 3%. But someone to say 20%, I mean, my ears were whoo, big. So myself, Tom Schwartz, the CEO of the company, and Bob Cameron, head of uh, head of marketing, we got in a car the next day, and we went to Hartford. And sure enough, it was exactly as he had portrayed it. Edna had created this whole new way for us to add to do a product extension of the sculpture. And so we went to an, uh, our agency. It wasn't the agency of record, which was a New York agency, and there was a young agency in Boston called Hill Holiday, which ultimately became a huge famous and big advertising agency, but it wasn't in those days. And it was called Hill Holiday and Cosmopolis because Steve Cosmopolis was a creative brain. And he said, let's call them Penny Poppers. And we said, Penny Poppers, that's a PP, Dunkin' Donuts, that's a DT. That sounds good. But it's wage and price control. We'll never keep these in any way near pennies. So, so he then said, what's your next idea? And the next idea was every April, I think CBS does the Wizard of Oz annually, and in there are these little people, the munchkins. Why don't we see, why don't we call them munchkins? So we do a search and lo and behold, there's a cookie company in Louisiana that owns the name munchkins. So we turned to our board member, Archie Southgate, and he called them and he found out they weren't doing anything with the name. And for a dollar a year, he leased the name for munchkins. We went on air, phenomenal success. Same store sales that year up over 12%. So in the middle of all of this tumult, all of this lines, odd and even days of getting gasoline, depending upon what the last number on your license plate was. I mean, it was a mess. And, and this was a savior. And it came from Edna Demery and at, the, at, at the right moment, like an angel from heaven. <laughs> and, and, and that was the beginning of a product that still to this day thrills customers. It's still on the menu. You know, it's 50 years later and it's still a huge success. Well, it just proves your point again, though, about having big ears and trusting the boots on the ground closest to the problem. I mean, it's, it's such a great story. It is a good story. <laughs> what's, what's another one of your favorite stories in the book? Let me see. We had traditionally, we had traditionally only sold donuts in the four walls of the store. Every store was a producing unit and it produced for those stores, for that store. So it was 2000 square feet, half of which was kitchen, half of which was retail space. A lot of rent in a big A location. I find out a head of international comes to me and he says, you know, overseas, 
they're distributing donuts out of the Makati store, which was our first store in Manila, which was phenomenally successful in the Philippines. He said, you know, they're delivering them to convenience stores and to, and to supermarkets and to, yeah, and to theaters and into gas stations. They've set up these little, these little uh, kiosks and they're selling donuts. And, and, and I said, oh, my goodness, they can't do that. That's not the way Fred the Baker tells the story about me. Supermarket donuts do that. So I had to take a trip to Japan. I'm going to stop in the Philippines on the way. And the Philippine franchise was owned by two families, uh, the Spakowskis and the Prietos. The Prietos, an old Spanish family. Leo Prieto was a distinguished, wonderful man. He was also head of the commissioner of basketball in the Philippines, which Philippines love basketball. Big, big thing. So he's an important guy. Uh, he never broaches the subject with me, and I don't broach it with him. And I'm there to open up uh, Dunkin' Donut University, a small part of the school they're going to open, and their, their warehouse where they're, they're going to distribute the flour and things. And he has all kinds of uh, parties planned during my stay of two or three days. And I come to find out that this idea of delivering donuts in their jitneys all over Manila, if you've ever been to Manila, everybody writes on these little motorcycles, little things on the back called jitneys. And the jitneys uh, really belong to the wives of the board members. The Spakowskis and the Prietos took in some of the most prominent families in the Philippines into their into their ownership and on their board. So here are the fanciest people in Manila utilizing their domestic help to deliver the donuts to these kiosks. And the women, the board members, women, own the kiosks and they're pocketing the money. So here I am sitting at each of these events and the parties and we're giving out awards and I'm sitting between these beautiful Filipino ladies and they are telling me how important the business is and how successful it is. And I have not the nerve to tell them I'm there to close it down, that this is not the way we go to market. And I was supposed to meet, I think I met uh, the CEO of Tom Shores in Japan. I was having some trouble with my Japanese licensee and I was there to kiss and make up. And, I, and, I, and then we were going to go on to, to Bangkok. And on the way, we started to talk about what these ladies have uncovered. And started to dawn us that maybe this is a better way to go market. Maybe this is what Coca-Cola went through when they started to sell Coke and bottles rather than just over fountains. This is a better way to go to market. You know, now we don't need 2,000 square feet for every store. We could do it with a beautiful 1,000-foot store. We could set up either one store in a neighborhood to service other stores and deliver them the product, on and on and on. And so basically, we shifted on a dime to change, to open up distribution to wherever people workshop, travel, to play. That was our new motto. And we were going to take product and make it more convenient to more customers. We exploded distribution. The ROI went from 12 to 15% to 17 to 20% in terms of a network now. So now people didn't buy an individual store. They bought a network of stores. And they would open three to five stores over a five-year time period. And those networks became 50 stores, 100 stores. I mean, changed the whole economics of the business. And it was transformational. And it came from the wives of the board members in the Philippines, in Manila. <laughs> That's exciting. You know, I don't have a lot more like that. Those are two good ones. Yeah, yeah, those are great ones. Well, I guess my question about that is, for those of the rest of us who, who have ambitions about going internationally eventually or who just feel like expanding to different parts of the country, there's cultural differences. Any guidance about navigating cultural differences with, with you know, a consistency Listen of a brand? People on, people on the ground, no, no. You don't want to compromise. It's, it's kind of a balancing act, but I think it's important 
I mean, I, particularly in an international market, not so much in a domestic market. Because I did know as we moved westward, people would tell me, you know, people out here drink coffee black. They don't like cream. And, I, you know, I, I didn't know. I didn't live in some of these markets. And I listened and I allowed them not, you know, not to put in full 18% cream. It, I, it's let some standards slip. And it was actually watching Starbucks open and start selling all these cream products. I said, I'm on the wrong track. I got I to gotta rethink this thing through. So, so in the United States, we were less likely to listen to people say we, it's different here. But boy, when we went to Japan or we went to Manila, we went to any of these other markets, you do have to customize. I mean, I, I, I tend to like focused businesses better than portfolios of businesses. You know, that's basically what I inherited from my dad. You know, my, our success was basically disrupting the portfolio and focusing. So that's, that's, that's my preference. And so I prefer, if I had to take risks to grow, I prefer geographic distribution, although it has its risks, to business diversification. I think that's even riskier, in my view. But when you do diversify geographically, you have to pay attention to local customs, and you have to listen to people on the ground. And sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're wrong, and that's why you get paid to be <laughs> an executive. You've got to make choices and decisions. But, but that's, that's my advice. On that matter, <laughs> that answers your question. Yeah, it does. I think my my next question is thinking about businesses that have been less retail focused. You know, we're working on an investment fund right now. We want to bring like large real estate investment trust type of investment to more regular Americans. You know, instead of only selling it to pension funds and university endowments and stuff. So I'm fascinated listening to this, thinking like, here's a product that has not really been sold to mom and pop America to your, you know, your individual wealthy entrepreneurs are not getting one-on-ones from Blackstone or somebody like that. Right. So in a, in an industry like that, where we're trying to make it more retail um, and more convenient and more understandable instead of, you know, gobbledygook finance jargon and stuff, any advice for, for what we're trying to do? Well, build a track record because that will sell it. It's word of mouth. And if it works. So the first few are the hardest to convince in the first fund, but once you demonstrate that the ROIs are better than they are for other investments and it's safer than most people think because it's a diversified portfolio, then that that becomes the vehicle to sell others. So, I mean, when I was teaching at Babson and, and students would come to me with ideas, you know, basically I would say start modestly and prove it because it's hard to sit in the, in the vacuum and figure out what will work and what won't work. It kind of, you got to do it and, and be aware of the fact that, I don't know, 80% of the time, maybe the first go isn't exactly right. So you have to have enough capital to restart. Duncan didn't start as Duncan started his open kettle and had to be ripped down because luckily, because a competitor was opening across the street and, and the stucco store had to be replaced with a brand new California style fishbowl with beautiful merchandising. You know, it, it, it takes a few tries. And that's not a failure. That's the way it goes. It's messy. I tell my children, life is lumpy. Well, business is lumpy too. And and be prepared. You know, buckle up your straps and buckle up your helmet because it's going to be bumpy. But I'd start and prove it out. And and you know, I, 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 a modest start oftentimes is the best one because it gives you room to save some capital for the second and third tries to get it right in terms of how to reach people in terms of also, I, you know, I'm not sure, you know, how, how large the first investments are in, in, in the assets themselves before you start to slice them. But it's certainly movements afoot. I mean, you don't have to go very far to Schwab and everybody else. 
I'm setting my grandsons up. They, they're already into slices of stock, you know, helping them build their portfolios with slices of stock. So it is sort of a, an idea whose time has come. And I think it's trends aligned. So I th- certainly think it's good. Anytime you can provide that kind of diversification and digestible bites to a mass market, I think that's a good thing. So at least on its surface, I would say it's not pie in the sky. It's the right idea. But exactly how and in what kind of increments and how you're going to reach them and what are you going to say? Do you go through lawyers, banks? I mean, I don't know how. I, I don't have real prescriptions about that. All I know is it's going to be kind of lumpy at first and you'll find your way if it's a good product and if it really suits a consumer's need, which I think it probably does. Well, I like your I like your advice there. It makes me think about Richard Branson, you know, when he breaks into like when he starts Virgin Money, he goes take over like, you know, big, boring banking industry. Right. And and he tries these different things. But I mean, it's like when he bought when he was doing Virgin Airlines, like he worked out a deal where he could give the airplane back that first one. If it didn't pan out, you know, like he, he's covering the downside and making sure that, you know, he can survive long enough to, to figure out the recipe. Right. Very real. I can tell you stories exactly the same one. So very yeah. real. I love it. Well, listen, we've covered a lot of different things here. I know we're about winding up. What's a question I didn't ask that I should have? Or what's a, what's a, what's a passion subject for you? Well, right now, a passion subject is to reach as many people as I can with my stories in hopes that it helps people. So the book is uh, it can be found. Uh, the site is around the corner to around the world. And it's sold by booksellers everywhere. Amazon and Barnes and Noble and BAM and all these booksellers. And I hope there's an audience for it. I hope people find value in it. Uh, that's my passion now. And uh, and I'm out preaching the gospel as best I can in hopes that I can help people. You know, that that all of these years of, of ups and downs finds a, a home in someone's knock and it will help them. Well, I, I'm excited to start listening. I'm, I'll have to email you afterwards and, and tell you my Perfect. favorite parts. I, I love that. I, I welcome it. Great. Well, listen, really appreciate all the time you spent with us here today. Thanks so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Great.